I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, and then John chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Our text this morning is John 1, verses 14 to 18, as we consider Christ, the Son of God. If you remember last time that I was here, I began a four-part series on the person and work of Christ. And so this is the second message in that series. We'll be looking again at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, but reading first Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 9. Let's hear God's word. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Turn now to John chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to him, to them he gave become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received in grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. Let us pray. 
Oh, gracious God and Father, how we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank You that Your Word directs us. And most of all, that Your Word points us to the One who is the true and living Word, the Word made flesh, the Word at Your right hand. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see Him and beholding Him that we would also see that He is our God, the God of Israel, the God of the church. We pray, O Lord, that You would fill us this morning with joy and thanksgiving, that we would be enabled by Your grace to receive our King and to seek to live our lives in this world as servants of the King, but also as kings and priests unto Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come in this... Uh, in the preaching of the Word this morning to one of the most breathtaking passages in the whole Bible. If we were to consider this passage as a whole, we would want to look at verses 1 to 18, which is why I had us read those verses this morning. These verses 1 to 18 are usually called the prologue of John's Gospel. One commentator that I read called the, the prologue the foyer of John's Gospel. It's because all of the great themes of the rest of the fourth gospel, all of the great themes that John will develop throughout this gospel are introduced right here in these verses. The eternal pre-existence of the Word is here in verses 1 and 2. In Him was light and life, verse 4. That light came into the world but was rejected by the darkness, yet the darkness could not comprehend or overcome it, verses 4 to 5 and verses 9 to 10. He came to His own, but His own refused to receive Him, verse 11. Yet as many as received Him, received the light, becoming children of God, born of God, born of the Spirit. Verses 12 to 14. All of these themes reappear elsewhere in John's Gospel as the Son of God is revealed to be the very Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. This morning we can only focus on verses 14 to 18. These verses unfold for us the mystery and the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, at Reformation, I preach this during what sometimes is called the Advent season, but it doesn't have to be Christmas time for us to hear about the incarnation. In fact, we ought to revel in and think about and consider and reflect upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ in every worship service on every Lord's Day. These verses tell us not only what God in the second person of the Trinity did, He became flesh and dwelt among us, but they show us what that means for us. And what it means for us is that the glory of God has been revealed in the person and redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who is in Himself the grace and truth of God for sinners. For sinners like you and me. We don't want to think of this grace and truth as some sort of substance that is imparted to us, something detached from Christ. But the grace and truth that come to us in the gospel are the grace and truth of Christ. He is the gospel. That's what we want to understand. And so that grace has come in a person. That's what we want to see this morning as we consider these verses and as we reflect on our theme, Christ, the Son of God. We'll do that by looking at two points. First, the glory of the Son, and second, 
the grace of the Son. Let's look first at the glory of the Son, verses 14 to 15. We saw last time, for those of you who were here, we saw as we reflected on Christ as the only Redeemer of God's elect from Colossians chapter 1, we saw that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one by whom and through whom and for whom God made all things. In Him, all things consist. And we might say it this way, all creation holds together in Christ, or He holds all creation together in Himself. This is precisely what we read here in the first verses of John's Gospel. Look with me there at verses 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When we read or hear that Jesus is the Word of God, we need to think of God's creation of the world in the very beginning. How did God create all things? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that God's work of creation is His making all things of nothing by the Word of His power in the space of six days and all very good. Question 9 of the Shorter Catechism. And that's just another way of saying that in the beginning God spoke and it was done. God spoke and it was done. He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be dry land and there was land. He said, let the earth bring forth its increase and there were plants and trees and there was food for man even before man was fashioned or formed. God the Word, who is God the Son, was with God in the beginning. And it was by Him and through Him and for Him that all things that were made were made. That's verse 3. Well, that brings us to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a profound statement. That's a statement that should fill our hearts with wonder and awe and thanksgiving. Not only was this Word of God eternally with God in the beginning, not only is He light of light and very God of very God, but now we read the most astonishing thing of all. This one who was with God and who was God in the beginning stepped out of eternity and into history, veiling his glory in our humanity and our mortality, and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Think about that for a moment. He dwelt among us. Literally, we read, he pitched his tent among us. Very picturesque language. He came to us in time and space and clothed in the weakness of our human flesh just as God pitched his tent among Israel in the wilderness. Jesus pitched his tent of flesh among us who are flesh. It's exactly what the word flesh is meant to con- communicate to us that he pitched his tent in the weakness of our human flesh. It's meant to communicate our weakness and our finiteness and our humiliation and our corruptibleness. You see, when you start really trying to comprehend in all its meaning and all its implications what's going on here in this text, it's really one of the most incomprehensible and incomprehensibly wonderful statements that has ever been made or that could be made. God the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God took to Himself a body of flesh and blood and bones and pitched His 
tent among us, but not quite as he pitched his tent with Israel in the wilderness. That was wonderful. That was glorious. This is far more wonderful, and this is far more glorious. God, the everlasting God, in the person of his only begotten Son, became flesh and dwelt among us, and not just us human beings. That too would have been wonderful and glorious. But God came to us, to sinners, to those unable to hear, to bear his glory, and to those in great need of his grace. To those unable to bear his glory, the fullness, the refulgence of the majesty and wonder of the glory of God, unable to bear it, you and me. And yet he came, veiling that glory. And yet flashes of that glory being seen again and again and again when he fed the 5,000, when he walked on water, flashes of the glory of God, when he changed the water to wine, flashes of the glory. He couldn't fully hide the glory because the glory was so great that it couldn't even be fully hidden. So John continues, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think John especially means we, the apostles, we beheld his glory. Not everyone beheld his glory. Not even everyone who knew Jesus or saw Jesus or heard the preaching of Jesus or even witnessed his miracles really beheld his glory. The same is true today, isn't it? You and I don't behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the way that his apostles did. But we do, through their testimony and by the gift of faith, we do behold the glory of the Son of God as that glory in all its brightness and radiance and infinite weightiness, because that's what the word means in Hebrew, the word glory. It means weightiness, heaviness. It comes to us by means of the inspired and inscripturated word, especially in the preaching of the word. We behold his glory in preaching. Have you ever thought of it that way? Because perhaps you're, you're seeing the weakness of a preacher. Perhaps you're hearing the stumbling, faltering words of a preacher when you should be looking past the preacher or hearing past the preacher and beholding the glory of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as that word is faithfully preached. You behold your Savior and his glory. We behold his glory in our worship. We behold his glory in his work of convicting and converting and, and conforming sinners to himself. That's the glory of God at work. And we see it. If we're looking for it, we see it so clearly. We see his work in shaping and fashioning and forming a people for himself, gathering them together from all kinds of different directions, gathering them together, different kinds of people, different categories of people, different classes of people, people with different levels of education. And he binds them together in a way that no human institution or organization ever could do. That's the glory of God at work. We behold his glory in the church. We behold his glory in the faithful witness of the persecuted saints and the martyrs. We behold his glory when we hear of those being held in shipping containers in the desert in the nation of Eritrea, we behold his glory as he sustains their faith through torture and even through the death of those beloved saints. We behold his glory in their faithful witness. 
We behold His glory when a covenant child who has never known a day without Christ in his or her, in his or her heart professes faith and participates in the Lord's Supper for the very first time. We behold His glory. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's presence. And the wonder of it all is that God makes Himself known to sinners at all. Have you ever thought about that? God makes Himself known to sinners. This is This is glorious. This is a mystery. It all comes to full expression in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we read here in verse 14 is that God has revealed Himself to sinners in the person of His Son for the purpose of making known to us the wonder and the graciousness of His eternal grace and truth. Matthew Henry says this is precisely what qualified the the incarnate Word the eternal Son of God, to be our Redeemer and our Mediator, and to be our sin-bearer and our substitute at the cross. He is full of grace and truth. That's what qualifies Him. He is full of grace and truth. In the measure of God, that's what qualifies Him. He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding, full of goodness and truth. That's a quotation from the Old Testament, the very attributes of God that Moses saw on display when God gave him a fleeting glimpse of his glory. What did God want Moses to know and the people of Israel to know about him? That he's full of graciousness and full of truth, full of goodness and truth. But not only is the Son of God full of grace and truth in himself, he is full of grace and truth for us, for us who believe. He is full of grace and truth. In the words of Matthew Henry, he received that he might give. And God was well pleased in him that he might be well pleased with us in him. You see, that's how God is well pleased with you. He's well pleased with you because Jesus is full of grace and truth. And because God is pleased with his Son, therefore God is pleased with those who are in his Son by faith. That's why verse 15 comes just when it does. Look with me there. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. The whole witness of John was a witness to the grace and truth of Christ as the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. A Savior full of grace and truth for sinners. John's ministry focuses on the glory and the preeminence of Christ. How is it that John, who comes first in order of birth, and whose prophetic ministry was well underway when Jesus comes on the scene, so much so that all Jerusalem and all Judea were going out into the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized by him, how is it that John now points to Jesus and says he's greater than me. If you were there, you would have said, what are you talking about, John? If you didn't know the grace and the truth and the glory that are in Jesus. The reason John says he is before me is he is the preeminent one. He is before me because he was God in the beginning. He is before me because he is the one in whom the glory of God is being revealed. He is before me because my ministry 
is not just a matter of baptizing with water. But he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I should say my ministry. John's saying my ministry is just a ministry of baptizing with water. But his ministry is a ministry of baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the glory of Jesus is the glory of the only begotten Son of God. To behold that glory is to behold the very glory of God. To behold the glory of Jesus is to behold the glory of God the Father. In a way that we are able to do so, He's revealed Him to us in a way that we can actually behold His glory. And though Jesus would go on to call John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets, how does John the Baptist respond to the greatness of the glory and the grace that he beheld in Jesus? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the response of the sinner who has seen himself in the light of the glory of the Son of God. It's the instinctive impulse of the preaching and the witness of the church in every age and every generation. He must increase. We must decrease. Is Christ increasing in your heart and life this morning? Is Christ increasing? Are you decreasing? It is His glory and His grace and His truth and His alone that we are seeking, is it not? Are you seeking His glory and His alone? Are you beholding and bearing witness to Him and His glory? He is the glory of God, the visible manifestation of all that God is revealed to us in our human flesh. The glory of the eternal and invisible God has come and has dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the sinless Son of God. That brings us to our second point. The grace of the Son, verses 16 to 19. Now you could still be wondering why verse 15 comes when it do, where it does. It comes between verses 14 and 16. Why does it come there? Why does it come at that point? Wouldn't it seem to flow better if we read right after the glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth, if we read these words in verse 16, and of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. Why is it that we have this verse, verse 15, about the witness of John sandwiched in between these verses about the glory of Christ. Why is that? Well, the reason is found in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now, if there's ever been a, a verse that's been misunderstood and misapplied, it's that verse. But if you understand where the ministry of John the Baptist falls in the history of God's plan of salvation, and if you see the great contrast that John the Apostle is highlighting in his gospel, it all begins to make sense. In Colossians 2, Christ the Son of God is said to be the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Well, here in verse 16, we're told that we, we who have received Christ by faith, have received what? We've received of his fullness. Another amazing, astonishing statement. We have received of his fullness. The one who was 
with God and who was God in the beginning. We have received of his fullness. It needs to be connected with what we read up in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what is this fullness that we've received in Christ? What is this fullness that's spoken of here? It's the new covenant fullness of grace and truth promised by all the prophets and which John had a commission from God to announce had finally come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the whole point of the contrast we see in verse 17. We who have beheld the glory of Christ have received of his fullness, the grace upon grace fullness of revelation of the Father's everlasting love for us in the gospel of his Son. You see, it's not that there's no grace in the Old Covenant. I don't want you to ever think that there's no grace in the Old Covenant. There is so much grace in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is full of grace. It's not that the Old Covenant was all about law and the New Covenant is all about grace. The Old Covenant was full of grace. The Old Covenant in all its types, in all its shadows, in all its Sabbaths and ceremonies, in all its sacrifices and all its symbolism, it all points forward to Christ and to the grace that is in Christ and to the grace that they were already receiving because of what Christ would do for them. It's all there. The grace is there in the Old Covenant. To come to the tabernacle and the temple and to have your offerings accepted through the mediation of the priesthood was to know that God was full of grace and truth. You had a way into the presence of God in the Old Covenant. It was through the priesthood that God had ordained. There in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. In that Ark were the tablets of the law. And that law was indeed convicting. And that law indeed was condemning. That law had been broken by Adam. That law was a witness against every soul that sins, saying the soul that sins, it shall die, and the wages of sin is death. But above the tablets of the law, on top of the ark, was the mercy seat. And it was there that the blood of the atonement the blood of the covenant would, was brought once a year by the high priest. And it was there that God was able, even in the old covenant, to say to sinners, my mercy and my truth have met together. My wrath has been satisfied and your sins are forgiven. Because God was seeing what God was going to do in his son. So it's not that there's no grace in the old covenant. Here in verse 16, we read some of the most precious words it is possible for sinners to hear. And of his fullness, we have all received in grace for grace. It's so astonishing. It's so overwhelming that if we really begin to reflect on all that it means for us who believe, we will be blown away by it. In us, that is in our flesh, there is no good thing. That's the first thing that God teaches us when he opens our blind eye, our blind eyes and causes us to see the light of his grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were empty, lifeless, dead, incapable of willing or doing anything pleasing or glorifying to God, utterly unrighteous in ourselves, under God's wrath and curse, devoid of life, bereft of blessing. 
without hope and without God in the world. But what do we read here? Despite what you and I were in ourselves, despite what we were in our sin, of His fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. And think of this, there's not two tiers or two categories of Christians. Some more spiritual than other because they have some sort of second blessing. We have all received the grace of God, the fullness that is in God that comes to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the fullness that is there for us who believe. Despite what we were in ourselves and in our sins, of His fullness we have all received in grace for grace. Do you know what that means? It means that if you are in Christ, you have, through the precious promises of the gospel, been made a partaker of the divine nature. That's what Peter says. It doesn't mean that you've become God, but it means that you are united to Christ. You are in Christ, and in Christ you are, are a partaker of the fullness of blessedness that is in God. I like to say it like this sometimes. We, the people of God, by our union with Christ, have been swept up into the community of the Trinity. We've been swept up and been brought into fellowship with the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing to think about. But that's what we have. We've been brought into that infinite sweetness of communion and fellowship of the Trinity through our union with Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. We've received grace for grace, or we might even put it better this way, grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. That's really what's being communicated. What does it mean that we've received grace upon grace in our blessed union with Jesus Christ? It's certainly true that we received immeasurable grace, incomprehensible grace, an infinite abundance of grace. For Christ is an inexhaustible fountain of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The Spirit wants us to understand this in connection with verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As I said, there's a contrast here. That if we're going to understand what's being said here, if we're we're going to understand or rightly appreciate what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand the contrast. You see, the point here is not to diminish or to dismiss the greatness and the wonder of the grace that was revealed to the people of God in the Old Covenant. It's not to diminish that at all. God doesn't change. God has always been a God of grace. Even from all eternity, God has been a God full of grace and truth. But you see, with the incarnation of Christ, the grace of God came to its fullest expression in the humanity and the historicity and the sinless glory of the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Notice the language here. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point is not that there was no grace and truth in the revelation given to Moses. The point is that the full manifestation of the glory of God, the glory that Moses only had a dim and oblique glimpse of, that glory came to us, came to us, came in the grace and truth revealed in a person, Jesus Christ 
the only begotten Son of God. You see, this is what John the Baptist's message was all about. His baptism was a sign to Israel that a new era had begun in covenant history. What Israel had been given through Moses was incomplete and becoming obsolete and could only be fulfilled and replaced by the fullness of grace and truth that are in Christ and the gospel. And you know, this is one of the great reasons why Israel rejected Jesus. Because if you began to think about what all was happening and what all would need to change in your life and in the life of the nation as a whole, it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable unless you were a partaker of, the, of that fullness of grace and truth, unless your heart had been changed and renewed by the grace that is in Jesus. The point is that all that had been revealed in the Mosaic tabernacle and all its ceremonies had finally and fully come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he was the new Israel and he was the new temple. And he would lead the people of God out of exile and into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. This is what they couldn't accept. This is why they didn't receive him because they couldn't see his glory. They couldn't see his glory the way that you and I, by faith, which is a gift of God, see his glory this morning. It becomes even more clear when we come to verse 18. Look with me there for a moment. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The Bible tells us two things about Moses that would seem to be contradictory. On the one hand, we're told that Moses spoke to God face to face, Exodus 33, verse 11. But notice in that very same passage, Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see the Lord in all his glory, what is he told? Very same passage. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Verse 20. You know what the Lord reveals to Moses when he does reveal his glory to him? He reveals his name. He reveals his name. And more specifically, he reveals his goodness and his truth, his grace and his truth. He passes by, and as he passes by, he proclaims the name of the Lord, that name which is long-suffering and full of goodness and truth. Those are the exact words that are used in the next chapter, Exodus 34, when God passes by Moses hidden in the cleft of a rock. What did Moses see? Have you ever thought about that? What did Moses see? I believe he saw a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. I believe that all the appearances in the Old Testament of God are appearances of the second person of the Trinity before he took flesh to himself. God the Son, the Son of God. But do you know what Moses didn't see? He didn't see the Word made flesh. That's what he didn't see. He saw only a dim, shadowy foreshadowing of the glory that John and the apostles saw in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He didn't see 
what John writes of in his first epistle, where he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is only able to declare the life that is in Jesus because Jesus has first declared the Father's glory and grace in himself. In Jesus, the grace and truth of God are fully declared. The word declared here in verse 18 is the word from which we get the word exegete or exegesis. If you have ever heard about or thought about exegetical preaching, you know what it is. The word exegesis is a word that means to draw out from something in order to understand something. You might think of a well. You're drawing out water from the well in order that your thirst might be quenched And what you do in exegetical preaching is you draw out from the word what is actually there in the word. A minister is called to exegete the word of God, not to come up with his own thoughts about what it says, but to to say and to declare what it actually says. He's to do so in order to help God's people understand what it means and how it can be applied in their hearts and lives. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. That's what John is saying. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He makes known to us the mind and will and nature and glory of the Father. He is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, He is in Himself the exegesis, the unfolding revelation of the Father's grace and truth towards sinners. And notice, He is the one who is and has always been in the bosom of the Father. So that as he stood there in the flesh, it could be said of him, nevertheless, he is in the bosom of the Father because he is the Son of God, because he is the Divine One, God the Son. Do you know what Jesus will say in John chapter 6? He'll say that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. But then he adds, he who believes on me has everlasting life. And in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen in me the grace and the truth that are eternally in the Father's bosom. The grace and the truth that has come that has fulfilled the law's exacting demands, that has suffered the fullness of the Father's wrath in our human flesh for our sake, and has risen again for our justification in our human flesh, who is even now at God's right hand pleading the innocence and the righteousness of all that belong to him on the basis of his precious atoning blood by faith. Do you see what we have in Christ? We have everything. We have everything. Do you belong to Jesus? 
Do you belong to Jesus? Can you say this morning that you've seen the face of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? I'm not asking that. I'm sure everyone in this room knows something about Jesus. Even the smallest children in this room know something about Jesus. I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. Even the demon spirits know about Jesus. And what do they do? They tremble because of who Jesus is. And they know that, they, that he will soon appear before him. Their time is very short. But do you know Jesus? Perhaps even better, are you known by Jesus? Children, what about you? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you love to know him? Do you love him? Do you want to serve Him? Do you want to grow in knowing Him? Do you love His worship? Even though you don't understand everything. Do you you love His preaching? Even though you don't understand it all. Do you love Him? Do you love to hear Him in preaching? Do you long to be more like Him? Do your sins grieve you? Children, do your sins grieve you? Grown-ups, do your sins grieve you? Do you confess them to God? Is there some secret sin that you're clinging to right now because that sin is more dear to you than the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you at the cross? Brothers and sisters, do you long to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And that glory is seen so brilliantly and so beautifully when a sinner comes to repentance. Not just for the first time, but again and again and again throughout the Christian life. Because that too is the work of Jesus. What are you living for this morning? What have you lived for this past week? What will you live for between now and the next time that you come into the presence of God? Are you living for the glory of God in heartfelt thanks and praise for the grace and truth that have been revealed to you and that have been bestowed upon you in Jesus. What if you were to die this very night? What if your soul were to be required of you this new year? Would you be ready? The light of the world has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God has been fully revealed in Him. His grace and His truth are proclaimed to you Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Look to Him and live. Hear His voice and believe. Behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, We thank you for the glory that's been revealed to us in the person of our Savior, your Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that we have seen in the new covenant, knowing that there was much grace in the old covenant, and yet that there is far, far more visible grace for us in the new covenant. We pray, O Lord, 
that you would help us to see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, that you would help us to love Jesus. And loving Jesus, that you would help us to serve and to worship and to follow Jesus all the day of our lives in this world for your glory. And that we might rejoice. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.